evening, everybody. So great to have you here tonight at RUF. Great to see the room packed out. A uh, few quick updates. Democracy's happening. That's fun. I hope you guys got a chance to vote. For those of you who are able to, uh, Wofford is hanging with Chapel Hill right now in basketball. It's a four-point game last time I checked. If Wofford wins that game, you are allowed to stop me, and we'll just pray right now. Okay? Um, tear your nation till I die. No offense. I know there's some Chapel Hill people in here. You're going down. So, anyways. Probably not, but maybe. Um, it, is, it is so good to have you. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John called Jesus Gives Us Life. Because that's what we want. We want life of meaning and purpose and beauty and goodness. We want this full, abundant life that Jesus says he came to give us. And so we've been talking this semester about different aspects of this life that Jesus comes to give us. And tonight we're going to see that Jesus gives us a life of truth. Jesus gives us a life of truth. We're, we're continuing, kind of progressing through the Gospel of John. We're on the same night time-wise that we've been in the past few weeks. This is the same night that Jesus met with his disciples to celebrate the Passover and have the Last Supper. The same night he washed their feet. Jesus has uh, gone out, uh, kind of outside into this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with them. Uh, It's there that Judas, who was one of his closest friends, one of his disciples, who's betrayed him and has brought these uh, religious rulers, this angry mob, to arrest Jesus. And they have brought him now before Pilate. So we're going to be reading about this conversation, this interaction between Jesus and Pilate, who's a Roman governor. So if you have your Bible or your handout, or you can look it up on your phone, we're looking at John 18, 28 to 40. John 18, 28 to 40. It would be great for you to follow along with me as I read. Then they, that's this angry mob, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that's the Jewish high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew, so it would be making them unclean to go into his home. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. He gives it to us because he loves us. 
You pray with me, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, so grateful for this night, for a chance to worship you, to gather together, to take a breath and a break from all the pressures and strains that we feel in these weeks. Lord, please give us rest in you. Please remind us of your love. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be at work through your word right now so that we might love you more and love each other. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard me talk, if you've been to RUF before, about this, about the summer camp that I grew up going to and that I, and that I worked at. The first summer that I was a counselor at this camp, I was a CIT counselor in training. I was 17 years old. And so I'm in this, uh, this two-sided cab in Hillside 1, Hillside 2. I was in Hillside 2. And uh, each cabin has six campers and a counselor, or in my case, five campers and two counselors because I was a CIT. And we woke up one morning, this is eight-year-old boys, so 11, eight-year-old boys, we woke up one morning to find a bat flying around the cabin. And so we did what you would expect anyone to do. We put on like our mountain bike helmets and sunglasses and got tennis rackets and tried to shoo the bat out of the cabin while the kids screamed and hid under their blankets. And uh, we eventually got this bat out of the cabin and we think, whew, problem solved, crisis averted. But then we find out that in North Carolina, uh, about 3% of bats carry rabies. And we think, again, shoot, crisis averted. Good thing this bat did not bite any of the children. Uh, but then we find out that there's actually a, a law that says if you are around where there is a bat and you're sleeping and you fail to capture the bat so you can't have it tested for rabies, then you have to assume that people have been infected and you have to treat them for rabies. Because apparently what can happen is that bats can, uh, they're little, right? They can bite you at night. You might not notice it. You might not feel anything. You might not see a mark. But then, like... 10 to 20 days later, lockjaw, painful death, right? Um, uh, or like a little bit of guano can fall on your pillow when you roll over and it gets in your eye membrane, lockjaw, painful death, okay? So uh, it, it, it comes to our attention that what we have to do is uh, the directors of the camp call the parents of these kids and we have to all go to the hospital. Uh, this is Transylvania County, North Carolina. It's Transylvania <laughs> County Hospital. That's a true story. That's just what it's called. I didn't make that up. Uh, to get to get these rabies shots. Here's how rabies shots work. It used to be that you had to get like 18 shots in your stomach. Thankfully, that does not have to happen anymore. Okay, the vaccine is uh, five shots over the course of four weeks, so we had to go a couple of times, and then they had to go, kids had to go a couple of times when they got home. And then they also give you the um, rabies immune globulin pre-med. Ask your people. I don't know what this means. What's up? It's like the consistency of maple syrup. It's really thick, and they use a four-inch needle because it like, can't go into the muscle. It has to go into the deep tissue. And, it, you know, it hurts. I mean, I'm, I wasn't scared, but it hurts, okay? And uh, we, have to, we have to take 11 eight-year-old boys whose mommies and daddies are hundreds of miles away to get these immune globulin rabies shots or else they're going to die. 3% chance if the guano got on the pillow. So like, how do you do this? How do you get kids on board with this sort of plan? Well, it's actually very simple. You lie to them. You just lie to them. You, you change the story. You reroute the narrative. And the new narrative that we rerouted to these children was, we're going to get ice cream as a cabin. It's going to be amazing. Like, you guys are so lucky. We're going to Dolly's. If you've been around Brevard, North Carolina, what's up? You know, Dolly's is legendary, Okay. And so uh, we are going to go, and we're going to get dollies. And we've got them literally in the vans down the camp road chanting, dollies, dollies, right? And, like, we do have to make a pit stop for a life-saving emergency procedure that's going to hurt a lot. But then it's milkshake time right afterwards, right? We, we change the story. 
we adjusted the truth so that it would mean to them we, what we wanted it to mean. We do that in our own lives all the time. We change the story. We adjust the truth. We make up our own truth when we need to. This is the thing that makes us feel better about all the decisions that we have to make in our lives. We make up this new truth that says, well, sex before marriage is normal now. It's not that bad. It's no big deal. We adjust the narrative so that like six to eight beers isn't like blackout drunk. So it's like, okay. We change the narrative so that that person that you want to date who like vaguely believes in a higher power and supports you in the things that you want to do, like going to church, it's like probably a good idea for you to line up with them and maybe get married someday. It's going to be just fine. Like, we're at W now. We're here to go to school. We're here to work. And it's just fine this week if you ignore your friends who are hurting because, after all, what are you here for if not to do school? We change the story. We give ourselves these new truths all the time. And one of the, one of the questions that we lie about the most is, how's it going this week? We just lie all the time. I'm fine. I'm good. My grades are good. No flu-like symptoms in my dorm room, I promise. Like, I'm not lonely at all. I'm not anxious at all. Everything's peachy. What are you doing on Saturday night, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yes, you do. And the problem is that uh, truth, real truth, capital T, truth, is not something that we are at liberty to create. It's not something that's under our jurisdiction, And when we create our own truth and we adjust the story so that our life means what we want it to mean, instead of it leading uh, us into a life of fullness and goodness and joy and beauty, it tends to lead us into loneliness. It tends to lead us into fear and anxiety and insecurity. And so you find yourself getting trapped in these stories. And you have to keep up making up new truths to sustain them so that you can feel like your head is above water. The only person who can uh, determine what the real story is what the real truth is, of course, is Jesus. Because it's through him that the world was made. He owns it. It belongs to him. He is the Lord. He is the source of truth. And what we're going to do is we're going to look tonight at this bizarre and terrifying scene between Jesus and Pilate. He's, he's on trial. He's been betrayed by one of his best friends. He's been arrested He's uh, being drawn in chains, literally bound before <clears throat> these authorities who want to kill him. And they brought him to Pilate because it's not legal for the Jewish authorities to, to kill someone. Judea is not a free country. It's in the Roman Empire, which means it's under the rule of Caesar. So Pilate, who's the, the Roman governor, he's, he's the absolute authority. His word is law. He's the only one who can order an execution. So they bring him... To Pilate. And what we're going to see is that in Jesus is real truth. And that Jesus wants to give us a life of truth because Jesus himself embodies the real story. He embodies truth. And so we're going to see two ways to do this. And it's going to be a little, a little different than you might expect when you think about what the world is all about. Because when you hear truth, I want you to think, what's the real story of life? What is this thing actually all about? What is actually going on here? And here's the two things we're going to see, the way Jesus embodies truth. Jesus embodies the truth of humiliation, and then Jesus embodies the truth of obedience. He embodies the truth of humiliation and the truth of obedience. First, Jesus embodies the truth of humiliation. Pilate is playing dumb a little bit, but he knows 
who Jesus is. He knows that uh, just like two days before, Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and people threw down their cloaks and palm leaves and cried out loud, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is like ringing in the streets. And so Jesus, who if you remember the second week of RUF, when we talked about the wedding at Cana in Galilee, when Jesus turns the water into wine, his first miracle, he tells his mother, my time has not yet come to reveal who I am. Like his time has come now. He's showing his cards. He's revealing who he is. It's public now. And Pilate asks him this direct question in verse 33. He says, he just asks him, is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? Like, are you the king? And Jesus kind of confounds him. He asks a question as an answer to his question. Oh, did you hear this? Are you asking because you've heard this on your own? Or did someone tell you this? But then uh, eventually he answers and he says, he says this, my kingdom is not of this world. Are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world. Uh, First, this is yes. Because only kings have kingdoms, right? He's talking about his kingdom. But what Jesus is saying is that the the source of his authority as king, it doesn't come from this world. It doesn't come from polls that are being tabulated and sent to computers. It doesn't come from the affirmation of other people. It doesn't come from military conquest. It doesn't come from shrewd social and political maneuvering. It comes from God. It comes from heaven. It is beyond contestation. It is beyond doubt. His power as king comes from God. But Jesus embodies the the radical truth here about his kingdom, that uh, real kingship, real power, real authority goes through the process of humiliation out of love. Humiliation out of love. Think about this. Jesus is full of power. He's the one who says things and they just happen. He's the one who, when he touches you, your whole life changes. And here he is bound, being dragged before a foreign enemy ruler by people who should be worshiping him. And it's right after this that Jesus is going to be flogged by the soldiers, like whipped on his bare skin until it rips the skin off his back. And then they put that crown of thorns on him. Like, that would hurt. They're pressing thorns into his head. And they put a fake robe on him, and they bow down to him. They mock him as if he's the king. Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they punch him in the face again and again and again. And they say, prophesy to us, Messiah. Which one of us hit you? And then they make him carry the device of his torturous death through the streets so that everyone can see that he's going to die. They put nails through his hands and feet and they hang him up to die like a petty criminal. He's utterly humiliated. He's utterly shamed. He's utterly embarrassed. Everyone is now saying, I guess he's not the real king. I guess he's not the Lord. I guess he's not the Messiah. I guess he's not the Savior. I guess he's not a prophet. But the reason that Jesus goes through humiliation is because the truth about the universe is that the path to love goes through humiliation. That the path to glory goes through suffering. 
and that everything that Jesus does as he, as he walks through these moments, this day, these hours of humiliation, everything he does is out of love is to put other people before himself. He endures it for you and for me as the king, as the one in charge, as the one with power. We, we know that we're supposed to act like Jesus. This is one of those places where we tend to change the story, right? Because when it comes to our life, we, we tend to put ourselves first and others below us, right? We tend to protect ourselves, our reputations, our time, our comfort, our agenda, our goals, our money, our energy. We tend to protect those things, right? We try to avoid humiliation at all costs. It's one of the reasons why we're so tempted to walk in the darkness instead of the truth. We don't want to be humiliated but that's actually the path of love. That's actually the way people are served. And so the first question for us tonight, which is a challenging one, is where might, be God, where might God be calling you to embrace the truth of humiliation? Where might he be calling you to embody humiliation in your own life? Where might he be calling you to let go of protecting your reputation? To give away your time? to give away your energy, to give away your position or your influence in order to love somebody else, in order to care for someone else, in order to elevate somebody else. Because Jesus embodies the truth of humiliation, and if we follow him, if we say we follow him, that's where we're we're being led. But it's actually the truth about what love looks like. It's putting ourselves down to put others up. Jesus embodies the truth of humiliation. The, the second thing tonight is that Jesus embodies the truth of obedience. When, when we talk about Jesus' death on the cross, the thing we tend to talk about is his love for us, and we should. Because his love for us is central to what is happening. But we can miss that Jesus' death is actually the great act of obedience. Because if you've read through John or any of the Gospels, you have this scene where he's in the garden right before this, right before he's arrested. And he's praying to his father, and he says, if there's any way for this cup to pass for me, if there's any way for this agony I'm about to go through to be avoided, then please let that happen, God. He does not want the pain. He does not want suffering. But then he says this, and this is really important. These are magical words. Not my will, but your will be done. What is Jesus doing as he walks towards the cross in this story? He's perfectly obeying his perfect father who he perfectly trusts. He's obeying God. It's an act of total obedience. This conversation with Pilate is so, is so dramatic. It's so weighty. Like the life of the Son of God is on the edge of a knife. Can you feel the drama of that? Like we're about to find out, like, is he going to get freed? Or is Pilate going to free a convicted criminal so that the eternal Savior, the Word made flesh, could be killed instead? And how is Jesus acting? How would you be acting? He's so calm. He's almost serene. He's deliberate. He's purposeful. He doesn't panic. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't try to get out of the trouble he's in. He doesn't flex his divine muscles 
like he could. I'll show you what real kingship looks like. I'll show you what real power looks like. He doesn't do it. (coughs) Why? He's perfectly obeying his perfect father that he perfectly trusts. It's a moment where we see that there's this true kind of power, this true kind of authority, this true kind of influence that still delights to submit itself to God. That even Jesus delights to submit himself to his Father. He walks in obedience even when it is costly to him. And he does it because that's what love is. He obeys his Father because he loves him. And he makes that same connection between obedience and love to us in John 14. He said, if you love me, he's talking to his disciples, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey me. Our love for God, our affection for Christ, our worship of the Father is meant to be expressed not just through songs, although it is, not just through prayers, although it is, but also through obedience. Even when it is costly to us. So for those of you who who have faith in Christ, I know not everyone here tonight does, For those of you who are following him, who believe in him, who say you love him, the question is, where might you be called this week to obey him? What struggle, what challenge is on your heart right now, this week? What what pattern of your life, what way of doing things do you need to be called out by God because you love him? We tend to retell the story to justify these things, right? To change the truth, to create, our, to create our own truth. We say things like, everyone looks at porn. It's no big deal. We just don't talk about it. We say things like, everyone's hooking up. It's not serious. We say things like, it's just in my head. The hatred, the judgment, the bitterness, the envy, the lust, the greed. It's just in my head. It's not hurting anybody. And we retell the story to make things okay. But Jesus embodied perfect obedience because the true way to love God is to obey Him. Even when it's costly. Even when it's hard. Even when you're going to look weird because of it. Paul in Philippians 2 sums up Uh, the humiliation and obedience of Jesus in this one beautiful section. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And then listen to this part. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, humiliation, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So the question for us is like, why is that the way? (laughs) Why was it worth it to Jesus to do that? And why would it be worth it to us to do that? Here's what Paul says after this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What happens when we walk through humiliation and obedience? Where does that lead you? Where does that lead Jesus? God raises him up. He literally raises his, him from the dead. He glorifies him. He exalts him. Humiliation and obedience lead to glory. They lead to life. The crown of eternal life is the reward. That's where it goes for Jesus. And if you follow him through those things, that is your trajectory as well. Your trajectory is life. It is fullness. It is goodness. It is beauty. Because the truth of the universe is humiliation and obedience and then glory. That is how the universe works. We know it because Jesus is raised from the dead. A a few years ago, a a really generous friend treated me to one of the best dinners of my life. Took me to a a resort uh, outside of Knoxville in the Smoky Mountains called Blackberry Farms, which is uh, one of the most prestigious resorts uh, in America, randomly, East Tennessee. What's up? Uh, and they have a restaurant there called The Barn. It, it is not what you would think of when you think of a barn. It's a really amazing place, uh, highly acclaimed, five stars, the Michelin stuff. Uh, not only is the food uh, excellent, exquisite, but it's, it's internationally acclaimed because of its wine cellar. This is a restaurant that has over a million bottles of wine in cellars uh, in and around the property. Like the cellar in the actual restaurant doesn't hold all the wine. They've got like seven of them, I think. We get to go on a tour. It was like being in a medieval castle down there. Like the perfect temperature and like the fancy stuff is behind these like wrought iron gates. That's like the old rare vintages and the bottles that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. And so uh, we're sitting down... And uh, my, I'm sitting next to my friend, my host, who's treating me to this amazing dinner. And the, the head sommelier walks over. He's like the wine expert. He's the wine consultant for the restaurant. They have a couple of them who work for this restaurant. And he comes over, and my friend is a regular at this place. And they start talking, and they're friends, and they, they, they have a rapport, and they know what's going on. Eventually, my friend says, hey, uh, you know what kind of wine I tend to like? Bring us some bottles. Like, doesn't tell them a price range. Like, doesn't, just says, bring us some, like, bring us some wine. You know what I like. And so the sommelier disappears, and he comes back with these uh, three bottles of wine. And if you've been in a fancy restaurant, you know how they do this. He, he uncorks the wine. He's got the, he's got the white towel. Everything's being decanted, right? And um, that does something to the wine. Uh, he, he pops the cork, and then he hands it to my friend who smells it. What's he smelling for? I have no idea. He hands it to me so I can smell it. Spoiler alert. It smells like wine, okay? So he hands it to me, and then... Um, and then so there's like glasses. There's a group of us. There's glasses everywhere because everyone is going to get to try these three bottles of wine like that we're starting out with. And so the, the sommelier starts to pour us wine. And, and as he's pouring the wine, he's telling us about the vintage and, and the region and the appellation for each wine and the blend of different kind of grapes. And like that's why this one from this year has those characteristic notes of like Christmas spice and orange marmalade and tobacco and dark chocolate. And I'm like... Yeah, totally. And, um, and as he's saying this stuff, uh, you know, I'm, I'm finding myself, I laugh when I look back at it. I, I find myself, I'm like nodding to him as if I understand. And I'm asking him questions. I'm like, now, is that from uh, France or, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm engaged. I know what's going on. And as he, t- you know, I'm smelling it and I'm twirling it. I'm looking at my friend how he twirls it first. 
I'm like, I'm a poor grad student at the time, okay? I don't, I don't know anything about wine. And I'm, and I'm in this moment, and I realize I'm living a lie right now. Because I don't know what I'm talking about. And I am pretending to go along with this thing. I'm pretending, as my friend is giving me the blessing of this really extravagant experience, I, I'm faking it. I'm acting like I know more than I do. I, I'm paying real close attention out of the corner of my eyes for where stuff's supposed to go and what goes with what course and all these things. It, it's, it's amazing how in, in any given moment of our lives, how willing we are to live a lie. I did not want this sommelier who I'll never lay eyes on ever again to realize that I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, I don't know the difference between a Pinot Noir and a Cabernet and, and like which grape is in which, and what, this one is the same. It's a Bordeaux blend, but it's California, and that's why they like. I, I wanted to act like I knew what was going on. I'm, I was willing to live a lie. We, we're so afraid of being found out. We're so afraid of being uh, caught in the act of not knowing what's going on, or of being weak, or of being overwhelmed, or of being scared that we are willing to live a lie. And when we do, it, it only leads us deeper and deeper into the insecurities that made us die in the first place. It only leads us deeper and deeper into fear. It only leads us deeper and deeper into isolation because now no one knows what's really going on with us because we are living a lie. But Jesus is the truth. Jesus walks in the truth. Jesus embodies the truth and as we walk in him as we follow him through humiliation and obedience we will actually live true lives uh, and it will cost us it's always costly it's always painful but that's actually the way to real life that's actually the way to true authentic genuine full joy and Jesus is raised from the dead and he has the crown of life And when we follow him, he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so much. We know that you are the way and the truth and the life. Jesus, we praise you that you embody truth. That for that purpose, for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth, you came to love us. Please give us the courage to follow you into places of humiliation and obedience where you might be calling us. Help us to trust you that you're with us in those places. And give us the hope of the fullness of life that you promise us. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.